0: there. I'm Nurse Mo and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. So today I'm really excited as per usual to be bringing this episode to you. It's one I wish I had had as a brand new nursing student and even again as a brand new nurse. Sometimes We forget things, even basic things, and I always love a good reminder. So whether you're a brand new nursing student, continuing student, or you've been working for a while, I hope that you learned something from this episode. Before we dive into that, let's take a quick minute for our listener shout out, and this one goes out to Paula, who says, today I just wanted to thank you. You're the best. I just finished my first math calculations exam, and I scored 100%. I did that. I can't believe it. The way you teach is incredible. None of my professors were able to teach with no complications like you. Actually, the way they did teach was so much more complicated and easy to get lost in the process. You're just the best. I wish you had a nursing education program. I would absolutely buy that. Thank you so very much. Paula, thank you for taking time to share your experience with learning dosage calculations the way I teach it inside. Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, and my standalone program, Confident Calculations. I'm so very proud of you and can't wait to receive an email from you in a year or two that says you've passed your NCLEX and you're now a licensed nurse. And if you're curious what Paula is talking about, I will put a link in the episode notes to the online programs where I teach dosage calculations with 100% accuracy and total and complete confidence. So let's dive into today's episode. We are going to be talking through eight labs to know before your first clinical day. And the reason you want to know some labs before you go to your first clinical day is that the sooner you can start putting the pieces together and starting to connect the dots with what's going on with your patient, their lab results with their symptoms, or with their underlying conditions, with their medications, you start to learn how to see the big picture and think like a nurse. So I know you're going to learn a lot of labs throughout nursing school and your career. And I guess the key thing I want to say is you're obviously not going to learn them all at once. So I've pulled eight that I think are really important to know thoroughly Before you start interacting with patients, reading charts, even doing case studies, when you have a key understanding of some very common labs, you'll just understand things so much better. And these eight labs are hemoglobin, hematocrit, white blood cells, platelets, sodium, potassium, creatinine, and glucose. Are these the only labs you need to understand? Of course not. But if you know these eight, you'll be off to a really great start. So let's begin with hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the protein molecule in red blood cells that carries oxygen and carbon dioxide throughout the body. It picks up oxygen at the alveolar level and exchanges it for carbon dioxide at the tissue level. Hemoglobin is a component of the complete blood count, or CBC and is a reflection of the number of red blood cells in the blood. Now, though you probably think of hemoglobin as an indicator of anemia, like when hemoglobin is low, it can also be elevated in some cases. So causes for increased hemoglobin include polycythemia vera, COPD, certain cancers, pulmonary fibrosis, smoking, Dehydration, living at high altitude, congenital heart disease, and taking medications that increase red blood cell production, such as erythropoietin stimulating agents. Notice I mentioned dehydration as a possible cause for elevated hemoglobin levels. And this is because hemoglobin levels are relative to plasma volume. So, If an individual is dehydrated, the blood becomes more concentrated and hemoglobin levels read higher. If the patient has increased plasma volume, the blood is less concentrated and hemoglobin levels read lower. Now, this can occur because the patient has too much fluid on board, but it's an expected finding in pregnancy when there is just simply more plasma volume. So when you're looking at your hemoglobin levels, you need to take the patient's fluid volume status into account. So some causes for low hemoglobin levels would include anemia. That's probably the first thing that you think of. Cirrhosis is another one. Pregnancy, again, due to that increased plasma volume. Chronic kidney disease. Bone marrow failure. Splenomegaly. GI bleeds, and hemolytic reactions, which can occur with blood transfusions. So speaking of blood transfusions, hemoglobin is generally the lab value that we utilize to determine if a patient requires a blood transfusion. Though a normal hemoglobin level is typically between 12 to 18 grams per deciliter, with some variability for gender, and it may differ from one lab to the next, the criteria for a blood transfusion is typically a hemoglobin that is less than 7 or 8 grams per deciliter, and that would be in the acute care setting. However, this threshold may be higher in a patient who is actively bleeding and, of course, is dependent upon the physician and the patient's symptoms. A lot of times, patients don't really have symptoms of anemia until their hemoglobin gets to that 7 or 8 or below. So we don't want to transfuse unless it's absolutely necessary. So that threshold for it, again, is around 7 to 8, or it might be a little bit higher if the patient's actively bleeding or really symptomatic. And each unit of packed red blood cells should raise the hemoglobin level by approximately 1 gram per deciliter. Now, a question that comes up often is when the hemoglobin level should be reassessed after a transfusion, and you will likely hear different answers. Ask three people, you're probably going to get three different answers. So, of course, I went looking around for some evidence on this and found a 2020 study that showed that there was no significant difference in the hemoglobin level when tested one hour, four hours, and 24 hours after the transfusion. So if you're drawing labs on a patient who has just had a blood transfusion and want a true reflection of the hemoglobin level, you don't necessarily have to wait three or four hours. You can get a reliable result after just one hour. So what might you notice about a patient with elevated or low hemoglobin levels? A patient with elevated hemoglobin levels may have a headache, may have hypertension, blurred vision, and fatigue. If the hemoglobin is especially high, the blood may be too viscous to travel effectively through tiny capillaries, and the patient can suffer ischemic events, TIAs, even a stroke. Definitely, though, it's more common for a patient to have lower hemoglobin levels, and an individual with anemia, essentially, would have fatigue, weak pulses, possibly cool extremities, pale skin, and if severe, shortness of breath, lightheadedness. They could even have chest pain. If your patient is symptomatic with low hemoglobin levels, they should be kept on bed rest until the MD determines it's safe for them to increase their activity. Usually this is after hemoglobin levels increase either on their own or with a blood transfusion. So something I want you to be thinking about when you're Going into your patient's charts and you're looking at their labs and you notice abnormal labs. Ask yourself some key questions. And when you're new, you won't know the answers to these questions and it's okay, but get used to asking them. One of those questions is Is it abnormal enough to require intervention? Sometimes mildly elevated or mildly low results. We kind of just watch and wait in the clinical setting, but ask yourself that first. Over time, And with experience, you'll learn which things can be more in that watch and wait category and which things actually are going to require intervention. So that would be your second question. What can we do to fix this? And then your third question is, what do I need to do to accommodate for this? And sometimes you have to do both. You have to address it or fix it, and you have to make accommodations for it. So what might this look like for a patient with a low hemoglobin level, for example? So let's say the patient's hemoglobin level is 5.8. Is this low enough to require some kind of intervention or change in their plan of care? Absolutely. Are we going to fix it? Absolutely. This patient's likely to get a blood transfusion. And then how would we accommodate for this low hemoglobin level? Well, the patient may be short of breath. They may have low SpO2 levels, so they may need some supplemental oxygen. We may also want to keep them on bed rest until their hemoglobin levels come up. They're also probably feeling pretty fatigued, so we could cluster our care and allow for resting periods. And then for the elevated hemoglobin, If it is elevated enough to require some kind of intervention, that is typically in the short term going to be a phlebotomy, where we remove blood from the patient. And then there are medications that can decrease hemoglobin by suppressing the bone marrow, but those take a significant amount of time to actually work. So if the patient needs an immediate drop in their hemoglobin, then phlebotomy is the intervention that we're going to use. And accommodations for a patient with an elevated hemoglobin level is, you know, they may need some extra fluids to help keep the blood from getting too viscous, and they may be very fatigued. So giving them rest periods or even bed rest may be necessary. Though generally, I would say we try to avoid bed rest in the clinical setting as much as we possibly can because there are so many detrimental things that happen with immobility. So I would say if you've got a patient who's very fatigued and they don't want to be getting out of bed, it's still important to mobilize them as much as you can to their ability, but make sure you are providing rest periods. So be thinking along those lines as you look at labs. Does it require any kind of intervention? What is that intervention? Can we fix this? And do we need to accommodate for it? Sometimes, again, it's both. So now let's look at the second lab, which is hematocrit. Very, very similar to hemoglobin, but I wanted you to understand the difference. So hematocrit, again, very similar to hemoglobin, but it's really important that you understand what the value represents. And hematocrit is a measure of the percentage of total blood volume that is made up of red blood cells. Hematocrit is generally going to be 3 times the hemoglobin and can also be affected by plasma volume levels just like hemoglobin can. The hematocrit is expected to increase by 3% with each unit of packed red blood cells. So here's my pro tip for you about hematocrit. Hematocrit is often measured alongside hemoglobin. So if you hear someone refer to the H and H, they are referring to hemoglobin and hematocrit. A lot of times you'll hear the nurse say, "Dr. so and so has ordered serial H&Hs for the patient." What does that mean? Let's translate that. That means the physician has ordered repeat lab tests of the hemoglobin and hematocrit in a specified time frame, such as every 4 hours, every 6 hours, or every 8 hours. That's what's referred to as a serial or series of lab tests. So a serial H&H might be H&H every four hours, every six hours, or again, every eight hours. And you'll see serial H&H ordered for a patient, for example, with an active bleed, like a GI bleed, for example. They want to keep a really close eye on the severity of the bleeding and if that H&H is dropping much too quickly. Okay, let's move on to the next lab that I want you to know before your first clinical day and that is white blood cells. White blood cells are also part of the complete blood count, along with the hemoglobin and the hematocrit. And this is the key lab that you'll assess as you monitor your patient with suspected or confirmed infection. A normal white blood cell count is about five to 10,000 in an adult. Again, you will always see variability on what is considered a normal value depending on the lab that is running the test and the facility where you work and their protocols. But that's a general ballpark. An increased total white blood cell count is called leukocytosis. And this is generally a sign of infection. However, there are other causes for leukocytosis, such as inflammation, trauma, stress, smoking, and certain medications such as corticosteroids and lithium. White blood cells are also increased during labor and in later stages of pregnancy. So an elevated level at this stage does not necessarily mean the individual has an infection. Again, it could have been the later stages of pregnancy or during labor when that white blood cell count increased. Another rare but possible cause for an increased white blood cell count is certain types of cancers such as acute myeloid leukemia and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So white blood cells can be increased then as well. So that was the total white blood cell count. Now, without getting into too much detail because we're really just focusing on big picture labs here, there is a secondary test associated with the white blood cell count called the differential. And this looks at different types of white blood cells, neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. One important thing to know is that an increase in a specific type of neutrophil called a band, it's an immature or new neutrophil, generally indicates an acute or worsening bacterial infection. White blood cells can also be decreased in infection if the body isn't able to mount a sufficient immune response or if the body's white blood cells are depleted by an overwhelming infection. Other conditions associated with leukopenia, which is a low white blood cell count, include bone marrow failure, autoimmune disease, malnutrition, and certain medications such as immunosuppressants, clozapine, which is an antipsychotic medication, hydroxychloroquine, which is used to treat systemic lupus erythematosus, lamotrigine, which is an anti-seizure drug, diuretics, and chemotherapeutic agents. Again, those were immunosuppressants, clozapine, which is an antipsychotic, hydroxychloroquine, which is used to treat lupus, lamotrigine, which is an anti-seizure drug, diuretics, and chemotherapeutic agents. Of course, there are others. I chose some of the ones you're most likely to see as a first-semester nursing student or just as a nurse working in the clinical setting. Now, if your patient has a very low white blood cell count and specifically a very low neutrophil count, they will likely be placed on neutropenic precautions and be at very high risk for infection. You will need to thoroughly wash your hands before entering the patient's room and wear full PPE. Many times the room will have positive pressure airflow to help keep airborne pathogens out of the patient's room. Regardless of whether or not your patient has an airflow isolation room, you must keep the door closed at all times. We don't want any pathogens getting in there. And before leaving the room, make sure the patient has easy access to their call light should they require assistance, because with that door closed, you may not hear them very well. So when you're looking at white blood cells, you're going to be asking yourself, is this abnormal value abnormal enough to require some kind of change in the plan of care or require some kind of intervention? What are we going to do to fix it? And do we need to accommodate for it? And sometimes, again, you need to fix it and accommodate for it. So if the white blood cell count is high and it's sufficiently high, then what are we doing to fix it? Well, obviously, the patient most likely, not obviously, but most likely has some kind of infection. It's going to get treated. We're going to look at what is causing the infection and see if we can control it. That is called source control. And the patient will get antibiotics if it's a bacterial infection other medications for different types of infections from other pathogens. And then to accommodate that, we're really going to work to prevent the spread of infection, right? So making sure we're doing really good hand hygiene. Let's say the patient has pneumonia. We teach them to blow their nose and cough into a tissue and then to dispose of that tissue and then wash their hands. So things like that to prevent the spread of infection. And then again, if your patient has that low white blood cell count, they're at higher risk for infection. The neutropenic patient, that was the extreme example. That patient is at the highest risk. So what are we doing to accommodate that? Again, we're going to really try to prevent transmitting any pathogens to the patient. And can we fix a low white blood cell count? Generally, we're just going to wait and let the body regenerate its white blood cells on its own. And mostly take measures to treat whatever the underlying condition is and prevent infection. The next lab, we'll talk about our platelets, but first, a quick break. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. So platelets is another key lab to know, and this is also a component of the complete blood count. A low platelet level is called thrombocytopenia, And an elevated platelet level is called thrombocytosis. Both can be detrimental for your patient, though thrombocytopenia is definitely more common. Now, a low platelet level is generally considered to be below 100,000. And the greatest risk for your patient is bleeding. In fact, spontaneous bleeding or spontaneous hemorrhage can occur when platelet levels are below 20,000, and prolonged bleeding from invasive procedures can occur when the platelet level is around 50,000. Causes of thrombocytopenia are numerous and include things like chemotherapy. Many times, your patients with cancer who are undergoing chemotherapy will have very low platelet counts. Leukemia can cause thrombocytopenia, any condition involving bone marrow failure, DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation, basically uses up all the platelets. Viral infections can cause a low platelet count, as can lupus, and nutritional deficiencies. In addition, a common cause of thrombocytopenia is a condition called immune thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, which is an autoimmune condition which results from the presence of antiplatelet autoantibodies. So the body's basically attacking itself. So that is thrombocytopenia or a low platelet count. An elevated platelet count occurs in conditions such as polycythemia vera, malignancies, splenectomy, hemolytic anemia, inflammatory disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis and iron deficiency anemia. Thrombocytosis can also occur with blood losses, as the body tries to stop the bleeding by making more platelets. So when we're looking at our patient's platelet count, we're going to be saying to ourselves, okay, is this abnormal value abnormal enough that we're going to do something about it? And if it is, then what is the next question? What can we do to fix it? And do we need to accommodate for it? So let's go back to that low platelet level. What can we do to fix this? Hey, how about we give platelets? A lot of times patients will get a platelet infusion in order to bring their levels up, especially if they are going to be undergoing an invasive procedure, such as a surgery, for example. Let's say you've got a patient who needs a chest tube, but their platelets are 22,000. They may get platelets prior to the placement of that chest tube so that the bleeding can be more easily controlled. And then do we need to make accommodations for a patient with low platelets? Absolutely. A lot of times your hospital will have bleeding precautions protocols. If not, it is just common sense to practice safe nursing care that does not cause the patient to bleed unnecessarily. And that's typically going to be no invasive procedures. And that includes things like IM injections. And a lot of times the patient may get no medications or Anything via the rectum because we don't want any bleeding there. We're not going to use floss. Not that I've ever seen floss in the hospital, but maybe your patient brought their floss from home. We're not going to be flossing because the patient could bleed. We're going to be using a very soft toothbrush or even the tooth sponge things because we don't want the gums to bleed. We would restrict razors, so we wouldn't let the patient use a razor to shave, or we wouldn't use a razor to shave. We could use an electric shaver, for example, but not an actual razor. So those are all kinds of things that you would want to keep an eye out for. As far as bleeding precautions go, there are others, but again, a lot of them are common sense, right? So that is how we would accommodate that patient. We're going to be very careful with them. We definitely don't want them to fall if they hit their head. That could be absolutely devastating. So they may be on bed rest until we get their platelets elevated enough so that they're not at super high risk for either spontaneous hemorrhage or extensive bleeding. And then with the high platelets, can we fix that? That's a little bit of a more difficult path to follow. There's not really any quick fix for thrombocytosis, though there are medications that will lower the platelet count, but they generally take a while to work. So if the elevated platelets are due to some underlying condition, underlying cause, they may look at addressing that underlying cause. And if you're thinking maybe phlebotomy for excess platelets, you wouldn't necessarily get lower platelets from that. You would actually possibly even get an increase in platelets from that. So again, more likely than not, if your patient has an abnormal platelet value, it's going to be on that lower end, and we will be putting the patient on bleeding precautions if we need to and giving platelets if necessary. So far, all the labs we've talked about have been in this CBC or complete blood count. Now let's look at some that are more what we call chemistries in that chemistry panel, the basic metabolic panel, or the complete metabolic panel. So the first is sodium. And there are so many mechanisms in the body that affect serum sodium levels And essentially, when you're thinking of serum sodium, I want you to be thinking fluid balance. They're all very closely tied with fluid balance. Water follows salt. So for example, aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone cause the body to hold on to sodium. So what do you think that does to the body's water? Causes the body to hold on to water. The body may produce more or less of these key hormones in efforts to maintain homeostasis and that was aldosterone an antidiuretic hormone now because sodium is most abundant outside of the cell normal plasma levels are quite high when compared to electrolytes that mostly live inside the cell such as potassium a normal serum sodium level is between 135 to 145 milliequivalents per liter An elevated serum sodium level is called hypernatremia, while a low level is called hyponatremia. In the clinical setting, hyponatremia is one of the most common electrolyte abnormalities you will see, along with the one we're going to talk about next, which is hypokalemia. So the reason hyponatremia is concerning is that it is closely associated with cerebral edema. And neurological complications. And this is because of the way fluid shifts in the body when sodium levels are low. So, when the concentration of sodium is low in this serum, the serum is essentially hypotonic. So, the osmotic gradient causes fluid to then shift out of that intravascular space where the serum is and into the brain cells, causing them to get big and basically. We have edema. So this cerebral edema can lead to serious neurological deterioration, especially if that shift is drastic and occurs quickly. Note that hyponatremia can also be chronic. These individuals tend to have less drastic neurological complications and may even be asymptomatic, especially if the hyponatremia is mild. Now, hyponatremia can be due to a lot of different factors, including excess water consumption, decreased sodium intake, Addison's disease, which causes increased losses due to low aldosterone levels, losses through the GI tract from diarrhea, from vomiting, from excessive nasogastric suctioning. It can be associated with hyperglycemia and the third spacing of fluids. So when you're looking at your labs and you see that your patient has hyponatremia, is it hyponatremia enough to require interventions? And in many cases, it will require something. Is it going to be fixed or are we going to let the body just kind of get back into balance on its own? That really depends on the severity of the hyponatremia and the patient's symptoms And then, are we making any accommodations for this patient? So, mild hyponatremia is often treated by restricting free water intake. And when we say free water, we mean water that doesn't have any electrolytes in it. Not that it doesn't cost any money, but it doesn't have any electrolytes in it. It's free water, it's the plain old water that you and I drink every day. So, we can restrict free water intake and let the body achieve homeostasis. That would be a common. Treatment in mild hyponatremia. And what this looks like is a patient basically on what's called fluid restrictions. If the hyponatremia is severe or the patient is showing some signs of neurological compromise, regardless of the level, then probably we're going to be doing something to fix it. And that is often hypertonic saline. Note that hypertonic saline is a high, high, high risk medication and sodium levels must be corrected very slowly. And monitored very carefully so as to avoid sudden fluid shifts and a very serious neurological complication called central pontine myelinolysis, more easily pronounced by its other name, which is locked in syndrome. As a nursing student, you will never, ever, ever be administering hypertonic saline. It is only administered in the critical care setting and, again, is one of the highest risk medications you'll ever see. So how do we accommodate for a patient with hyponatremia? Generally, we're going to be watching the patient's neurological status, doing frequent neurological checks, and probably keeping them on seizure precautions because of the risk for seizure. Now looking at hypernatremia, This is not quite as common as hyponatremia, though it can occur, and it's also corrected slowly since rapidly decreasing sodium levels can cause fluid shifts as well. Treatment involves addressing the underlying cause and generally may also include administering IV fluids such as D5W, for example, though this could vary, and include IV solutions such as D5-half normal saline or something like that, this will be decided by the physician and is highly dependent on the whole picture of what's going on with the patient. And sometimes if the hypernatremia is mild, it may be treated by giving the patient more free water, encouraging PO fluids that don't have any electrolytes in them, and possibly if the patient has a tube feeding, then I've done this many times in the ICU where the patient gets free water flushes every four hours or so, and we're essentially just diluting that serum sodium very slowly and carefully. So as for what causes hypernatremia, it's often due to water losses, which can occur with conditions like diabetes insipidus. It can occur with extensive burns and simply because of decreased PO fluid intake. Another potential cause is increased sodium reabsorption, which occurs in conditions such as hyperaldosteronism and Cushing's syndrome. Hypernatremia can also be due to excessive sodium intake either from IV fluids or dietary sources. The most significant complication of hypernatremia is subdural or subarachnoid hemorrhage due to vascular rupture. Your patient is also at risk for seizure, so that would be another accommodation to make. If the serum sodium level is high enough, that can cause seizures, so your patient would need to be on seizure precautions. Next up in our eight labs to know is potassium. And the main reason you want to check your patient's potassium level is because of the role that potassium plays in cardiac electrophysiology. High or low potassium levels can lead to serious cardiac dysrhythmias, and even cardiac arrest. So potassium is that main cation inside the cell. So serum levels are actually quite small. A normal serum potassium level is about 3.5 to 5 milliequivalents per liter. So even very small changes in that serum potassium level can have a really big impact. Since potassium is secreted by the kidneys and resorption does not occur, levels can drop dramatically in individuals who are not taking in dietary potassium or receiving supplementation through tablets or IV fluids. Patients at the highest risk for low potassium levels or hypokalemia are those taking loop diuretics such as furosemide. These patients often require potassium replacement, which can be PO with big, giant potassium tablets or a really foul-tasting oral liquid that nobody seems to like, or it can be replaced IV. Now, it is absolutely imperative to understand that IV potassium is never, never, never given quickly, as this can cause cardiac arrest. Instead, IV potassium is administered in diluted form at a slow rate of about 10 milliequivalents per hour in most cases. If your patient is on potassium replacement protocol, make note of when their next potassium level should be checked. If the potassium was administered PO, this is generally four to six hours later. And if it was administered IV, this is often one to two hours after the infusion has completed. Signs of hypokalemia are generally related to muscle contraction. So you may notice weakness in your patient, gastric ileus, and depressed cardiac function, which often manifests initially as premature ventricular contractions. Very, very common if you're watching your patient on the monitor and you see lots of PVCs. I go and check their potassium level. A lot of times, it's a bit low. So when you're looking at a low potassium level, does it require some kind of intervention? What are you going to do to fix it? And how are you going to accommodate it? So what are we doing to fix a low potassium level? We're replacing that potassium with IV or PO supplementation. And then for accommodations, if it's low enough, you want to make sure you have that patient on a cardiac monitor so you can keep a close eye on their cardiac function. Now, looking at hyperkalemia, this is also a concern, and the manifestation or sign that always shows up on exams of hyperkalemia is going to be tall, peaked T waves on the EKG. I guarantee you that will be on an exam at some point in nursing school, maybe even on your NCLEX. While hypokalemia causes weakness and gastric ileus, high Hyperkalemia can cause irritability, diarrhea, and vomiting. And again, of course, dysrhythmias and changes on the EKG. Hyperkalemia can be caused by a lot of different things, including excessive IV intake of IV potassium. A patient in renal failure is not going to be excreting their potassium effectively, their levels may be high. The patient may have received a transfusion of blood that has hemolyzed, and when it's hemolyzed, it's basically spilled its potassium out of the cell. Remember, potassium lives in the cell mostly, so if we have hemolyzed cells, we've got lots of potassium there, and in general, any hemolysis is going to cause hyperkalemia because the cells are spilling their contents and when they hemolyze, and one of those big things that live in the cell, again, is potassium, and then also in states of acidosis. Another common cause is the patient who is taking a potassium-sparing diuretic, such as spironolactone. If they are consuming potassium-rich foods or receiving a supplement, they are at much higher risk for elevated potassium levels. That would be another really good exam question, by the way. Now, when we're looking at hyperkalemia, is it going to require intervention? Of course, that depends on the level. What would we do to fix hyperkalemia? Well, how it is treated will depend on its severity. If it's mild and the patient is not symptomatic, treatment may include the administration of a medication called k which binds potassium in the GI tract to be excreted with the stool. And this takes several hours. That's why we're not going to be using this treatment in an emergency situation. If faster treatment is necessary, then insulin given along with dextrose can rapidly shift excess potassium into the cell. And this is because insulin essentially is the key that unlocks the cell And potassium enters along with the dextrose. It basically hitches a ride along with that dextrose. You'll also notice that calcium is typically administered at the same time. And I don't want you to think that the calcium is actually correcting the hyperkalemia. The calcium administration is not affecting the potassium levels and is instead given to make the cardiac cells less likely to suffer from the cardiotoxic effects of hyperkalemia. We say that it's cardioprotective in that way. Another medication that causes potassium to shift into the cell is albuterol, which has been shown to be just as effective as insulin and dextrose, but with a longer duration of action. In critical cases, emergency dialysis may actually be necessary. So for hyperkalemia, what are we going to do to treat it? We're going to try to get that potassium level down either slowly or quickly. And then the accommodation would essentially be to have the patient on the cardiac monitor again because they are high risk for cardiac dysrhythmias. We have two more labs to get through, creatinine and glucose. So creatinine is a really important lab value that relates to kidney function, and it's a component of that basic metabolic panel or the complete metabolic panel. Creatinine is a waste product that comes from the breakdown of muscle tissue and protein digestion. Now, since creatinine is entirely excreted by the kidneys, it serves as a really good indicator of kidney function. When the kidneys are functioning well, creatinine is removed adequately and the levels are normal. When creatinine levels are elevated, this is an indicator of impaired renal function and possibly even renal failure. Reasons for an elevated creatinine level include chronic kidney disease, acute kidney disease, and conditions such as glomerulonephritis, or urinary obstruction, or nephrotoxic medications like cephalosporins or ACE inhibitors. And simple dehydration could also cause an elevated creatinine level. So when you're looking at your creatinine level for your patient, is it high enough to get the MD's attention? Are we going to be doing anything to change the patient's plan of care? What are we going to do to fix this elevated creatinine level? Can we fix it? And what accommodations are we going to make? So, when you're looking at creatinine, it's important to understand that it reflects kidney function and how kidney function affects other aspects of your patient's care. So, for example, a patient with a markedly elevated creatinine level probably has some pretty significant kidney disease and is at high risk for electrolyte imbalances, such as hyperkalemia, which, as you just learned, can cause some serious cardiac dysrhythmias. Additionally, many medications will require reduced dosing. So this is how you would need to accommodate your care, right? It would require reduced dosing when those levels are elevated. One common medication that has specific renal dosing is anoxaparin, which is an anticoagulant medication. And some medications, such as metformin, may be avoided or held altogether when serum creatinine levels are increased. So thinking about what accommodations you might have to make, their meds may need to be adjusted. Additionally, a patient with acute renal failure is at risk for fluid volume overload, pulmonary edema, and even seizures. So you're going to be monitoring your patients for these things as well. So that's how your plan of care and the things that you're doing for the patient could shift when you notice that their creatinine levels are elevated on their labs. And then as far as fixing an elevated creatinine level, a lot of times it's treating the underlying condition, especially if it's something that is treatable, such as glomerulonephritis. All right, let's move on to glucose, our final lab to know before your first clinical day. And you'll find glucose on that basic metabolic panel, the complete metabolic panel, and through the point-of-care test using a finger stick. Patients are monitored in the clinical setting for hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia, even when they do not have diabetes because glucose is so important. Now, looking at hypoglycemia, this can occur for a lot of different factors, the main ones being decreased nutritional intake, and some medications can cause hypoglycemia. In addition to medications that directly reduce blood glucose, such as insulin, other medications that cause hypoglycemia include beta blockers, endomethacin, and antibiotics. And there are, of course, others. I just chose a few that might be somewhat common. Patients with hypoglycemia are at risk for really devastating neurological complications. So if the levels cannot be improved with PO intake, then IV dextrose is typically necessary. So when you're looking at hypoglycemia, your hospital will have very specific parameters and... Not just lab parameters, but patient symptom parameters for when treatment is required. So again, if it's mild and the patient is, for example, awake and alert and can drink some juice, they're going to get some juice or something like that. But if it's low enough, they're going to get IV dextrose, that we raise that glucose more quickly. And then looking at hyperglycemia, this occurs for reasons beyond diabetes as well. One of the most common reasons for elevated blood glucose in the clinical setting is stress, which can be related to trauma. It can be related to surgery, which is a type of trauma, inflammation, and infection. In fact, an elevated blood glucose level is one of the supporting factors for a diagnosis of sepsis. Other causes for elevated blood glucose include excess intake, and this can be from PO sources or IV sources, and medications such as corticosteroids and tricyclic antidepressants. Now, prolonged hyperglycemia, such as with uncontrolled diabetes or long-term corticosteroid use, for example, really puts the patient at high risk for infection, for poor wound healing, and poor skin integrity. Additionally, the evidence shows that hyperglycemia is associated with poorer outcomes, increased length of stay, and increased morbidity and mortality amongst hospitalized patients. So when you're looking at your patient's labs and you see hyperglycemia, is it elevated enough to cause some kind of intervention to be necessary? How are we fixing it? And what accommodations are we making? Generally, hyperglycemia is treated in the clinical setting with insulin, And accommodations that would need to be made would include for the long-term patient with that long-term hyperglycemia, they do have poor skin integrity. So one of the accommodations that you'll be making is very, very careful care of their skin and keeping their skin nice and clean and dry. And the other is that if you have a patient with an unexpected high glucose reading, then you really want to make sure that the MD is aware of this because again, the patient could have some other lying pathology going on and we want to make sure that we address that quickly. So there you have it. I did not expect to talk for 47 minutes about these eight important lab tests, but I do think that they're very, very important and I wanted you to understand not just what they are and what they test for, but how you might apply this information in the clinical setting and think about the whole picture of what is going on with your patient. I hope you found this episode enlightening and helpful and that if you're not yet following or subscribed to the show, that this episode is the one that gets you to say, yeah, I wanna make sure I don't miss another episode of this podcast because I'm learning so much. So next week, I'm kind of excited. I always say I'm so excited about what I'm talking about with you guys. I realize I say that all the time, but I actually am because it's kind of a fun episode. It was a listener request. Somebody wanted me to run through the differences between all those signs that are named after people. That's actually called eponymous when something is named after a person. You know, there's like Brudzinski sign, Koenig's, Collins, Murphy's, all those things. So we're gonna be going through some common eponymous terms and what they mean next week here on the Straight A Nursing Podcast. So I hope to see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing, a proud member of the Airwave Media Network. For more educational podcasts, check out airwavemedia.com. And for more nursing-related content, go to straightanursingstudent.com.